0: Um, about five years ago, uh, I was having a conversation with a really good friend of mine I was living in Canada at the time. And, uh, this, this woman, she was not a believer in Jesus. She was not a follower of Jesus. And, um, we got to talking about spiritual stuff and she told me that she had recently been looking into Buddhism. And so we started talking about Buddhism and she, she made this comment. She said, you know, I, I kind of, I don't see what the big deal is. I kind of feel like all of these faiths, all these religions, don't they all just kind of teach the same thing? And I said, well, you know, she said, "Yeah, I mean, they tell us all to live moral lives and to do good on this earth and just to do the best that we can and to be good people." And I said, "Okay, I, so I told her I disagreed with her a little bit. I don't think they all teach the same thing. And the problem is, if we're looking at if it's just for this life, yes, there's a lot of overlap in a lot of faiths. There's a lot of overlap if we're just talking about this life." I said, "But the problem is the trajectory of where these faiths are going and the trajectory of Christianity is very different than the trajectory of Buddhism." And I started talking with her about what I believe the Bible says about the, the end times, the end of the world, Jesus' return, however you want to call it. Um, and you can probably imagine the like, nervousness I felt as I talked to my friend about the end of the world. Like, it just is a weird topic. And I started telling her, what I think the Bible says is that, you know, Jesus is going to return, and he's going to make everything new. He's going to make everything right all of the brokenness, all of the sorrow, all the violence and the war, all the injustice, he is going to come and he's gonna set it all right and make it brand new again. And she had this look on her face as I said that to her and her response, word for word, it stuck with me forever. She says, that's, she goes, that's really cool. She said, but honestly, it, it feels like it's too good to be true. And her response is always stuck in my mind because this is the truth. Like the truth about the Christian faith And what the Bible teaches us about the trajectory of the world and what is going to happen in God's kingdom, it is so good. It is such good news that at face value, it almost feels too good to be true. And even though this is one of the most hopeful parts of our faith, I think sometimes as Christians, we really struggle to know how to talk about it. We struggle to know how to talk about the the end, the end times and You know, there's lots of words that make us feel weird. We don't even know what they mean. You know, the apocalypse, Armageddon, you know, Judgment Day, whatever. There's all these words and we don't know what to do with them. So sometimes we shy away from talking about them. And and this morning, we're gonna look at Mark 13 and Jesus is going to talk about some of these things. He's going to talk about the end and what's going to happen at the end and where he's going to be and what he's going to be like. And um, I have looked at this all week and I wanna be really honest with you, I'm still confused on a lot of it. Like some of it I still don't get. And I'm gonna share with you the conclusions that I've come to in looking through Mark 13. And I know that there's probably gonna be some in this room who disagree with the conclusions I've come to, and and that's okay. Like, I think at the end, I want us to remember that our goal, our goal is to remember what we talked about last week. Remember last week, somebody says, Jesus, what's the most important thing? He says, love God with all that you are and love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. He didn't say, love God with all that you are Love your neighbor as yourself and make sure you figure out the end times. It's really important. You know, it's not what Jesus said. He gave us two things. Love God with all you are. Love your neighbor as yourself. And that's what we wanna do this morning. And we're gonna try to make sense of some of what he's doing in Mark chapter 13. Um, I'm gonna give you a a picture of what I think happens in chapter 13 to help kind of be a roadmap for us as we work through it. Um, I want you to imagine a timeline. You know, you imagine a timeline. It's got all specific times marked out on it and um, imagine yourself on that timeline. So right now we are on a timeline. It is September 20th, it's 1140 in the morning. And I want you to imagine as we, we are zoomed in on that timeline so close that all we can see is what's right before us. So in other words, none of us can see what is gonna happen later tonight. None of us can see what's gonna happen 10 years from now, 30 years from now, 40 years from now, because we're we're zoomed in just on this one specific part of the timeline. What's gonna happen in Mark chapter 13 is the disciples are gonna be zoomed in on the specific timeline of where they are, about between 30 and 33 AD. And then Jesus is going to zoom out on that timeline and he's gonna give them a perspective on the future. And first he's gonna zoom out so that they're able to see 40 years. And then he's gonna zoom out again so that they can see into eternity. And then he's gonna zoom back in to this 40 year prediction. And then he's gonna zoom out again to see eternity. Okay, and that's kind of where we're gonna go as we go through chapter 13. If that's confusing for you, I'll walk us through it as we work through the chapter. So let's start. Uh, chapter 13, verse one. As he, Jesus, was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. And Jesus replied, you see all these great buildings. Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And we're just going to pause right there for a minute, okay? And that's We're starting with the disciples on this timeline, zoomed in on their specific place. They're walking out of the temple, and they see the temple structure in front of them. It's important for us to remember that we're going to get into some confusing confusing things in Mark 13, but let's not forget where we are in Mark's story. Remember, the last two chapters, Mark has been showing Jesus's opposition to the current temple system of the day and its leadership, and he is continuing that here in chapter 13. So all of chapter 11, all of chapter 12, and now the beginning of chapter 13 is Mark simply showing that Jesus stands in opposition to the temple of the day. So the disciples are walking out of that temple after Jesus has already pronounced judgment on it and they see the structure and they're absolutely amazed by the temple. Now, this is kind of weird to us because we've never seen this temple. We don't know why are they so impressed with these stones. I've got a picture of the temple that we're gonna put up on the screen. This is a, a model of what the temple would have looked like during their time. And it was massive. So we know from historians that the stones, just the, uh, the stones in the wall that encircles that courtyard there would have been about 60 feet long about 11 feet tall and about 14 feet deep, they would have weighed around a million pounds. I mean, it was huge. I mean, that's just the, the stones in the wall. And so, if you start to imagine the entire thing, those courtyards, the courtyard was a 35 acre enclosure. It, it could accommodate about 12 football fields. Like, it was massive. It was such, it was the largest temple of any kind of its day. So the disciples are walking out, it's been under construction for about 50 years at this point, and they see these stones and they're just utterly amazed. And we've all, we've all been there. We've all had these moments, right? I mean, if you've ever been, I don't know if you've been to Greece and stood in front of some of the old ruins or if you've been to Egypt and seen the pyramids or China and seen the Great Wall. Shoot, I, I did this in Nashville the other day. <laughs> I was driving into Nashville and I started counting all the cranes and I was like, wow, 17 cranes or probably more. That's what I counted. I'm like, man, Our city's really booming. This is amazing. Like, look at all the new buildings that are going up. I think I even tweeted about it. You know, I was so excited about it. So that's kind of what what the disciples are doing here. They're like, teacher, look at these stones. Look how magnificent. Look how amazing they are. And I think what's more amazing than the magnificence of the temple is Jesus' response. So this is going to be the first place where Jesus starts to zoom out on that timeline for us. He zooms out about 40 years and he says he's not impressed at all with these stones. He says, guys, look, you see these stones? He's like, not one of them is going to be left here. Not one of them is going to be left standing on top of the other. They're all going to be knocked down. Now, the reason I say that zoomed out about 40 years is because we know from history that around about 40 years after Jesus made these statements, the temple would be utterly destroyed. The Roman army under the leadership of Titus would come and stand against Jerusalem between the years of 66 and 70 AD and they would utterly destroy the temple and everything in Jerusalem. And so Jesus has started to back away and he's giving some perspective to the disciples about the magnificence of these stones. I think he's doing a couple things. One, he is pronouncing his judgment on, on, on the temple as he has been. He's been saying, hey, this temple is not where it's at. It's not gonna be left standing. Don't put your hope in it. But two, he is giving them perspective on what really matters. He's giving them perspective on where their hope should really lie. I think he's saying, guys, don't be impressed by the wrong things. Don't be impressed by these temple stones that have been cut out of a mountain that I made. Don't be impressed by these temple stones that have been made by human hands. And don't put your hope in those. You know, in Isaiah chapter 40, verses six through eight, There's this great passage where God says to Isaiah, he says, look, man, humanity is like the grass and their glory is like the flowers. And all it takes is one breath from God to level it all out, to clear out the grass and the flowers. Humanity is like grass. All of our accomplishments are like flowers. They're here today, they're gone tomorrow. And Jesus is simply saying, guys, don't put your hope in the accomplishments of humanity. Don't put your hope in the temple stones of this world but put your hope in me. Now, I, I love this because Peter, one of the apostles, he, w- he would have been standing right there with Jesus. We're gonna see his name in a little bit. He'd have been standing right there with Jesus when he said these things. And I love this because Peter wrote a letter about 40 years after Jesus said these things. And we have that letter. It's called 1 Peter. You can turn there if you want. And um, I think in First Peter, I love it because Peter, kind of gives us this commentary on Mark 13. Starting in verse four, I want you to imagine as I read this, Peter is writing these words to Christians who would have been around, around the time the temple was being destroyed. And Peter is remembering this moment outside the temple with Jesus where he was marveling over these stones cut by human hands. And he writes this in verse four of chapter two. He says, as you come to him, Jesus, the living stone, Rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, and listen to this, see I lay a stone, see I lay a stone in Zion, talking about Jesus, a chosen and precious cornerstone, And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. The one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. I love this. Peter is saying he's reminded of the temple stones and and of his temptation to put hope and to be impressed by the temple stones of this world. And he's writing instead saying, hey, put your hope not in the temple stones of this world, but in the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. Because whoever hopes in the cornerstone and puts their hope in him will never be put to shame. I think Peter clearly got the message that Jesus was giving him as he gave him this 40 year perspective. Hey, these temple stones are great and all, but they're not worthy of your hope. Find your hope in Jesus Christ, the the cornerstone that God has placed. So they leave the temple. And they're going to go across to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus has pronounced his judgment on the temple. And in pronouncing his judgment on the temple, he has given the disciples this 40-year perspective. And he has tried to give them a glimpse at what really matters of where their trust should lie. Their trust should lie in the cornerstone. Now we're going to pick up in in verse 3 of chapter 13 of Mark. It says that as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, again, Mark is continuing his his narrative here that Jesus is opposing the temple. He is sitting opposite the temple. Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when these things will happen and what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? Now, this question is super important. It's gonna help us understand chapter 13 a little bit. Their question is, when will these things happen? They are referring directly to what Jesus said about the temple being destroyed. They're saying, Jesus, tell us when these things will happen. Now, this phrase is really important because we're gonna see Jesus come back to it later in chapter 13, still talking about the temple. Okay, but Jesus goes on to answer them. They asked, when will these things happen? And look with me in verse five. Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen But the end is yet to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There's gonna be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. But you must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and you'll be flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you're gonna stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested, and brought to trial do not worry beforehand about what to say just say whatever is given to you at the time for it is not you speaking but the holy spirit i'm telling you brother will betray brother to death and a father will betray his child children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death and all men will hate you because of me but he who stands firm to the end will be saved now this sounds kind of doomsdayish a little bit as we, as we read that what jesus is giving the disciples But I want us to remember, we gotta remember where we are in this timeline. They have clearly asked about these things referring to the temple and Jesus has zoomed out 40 years and he's answering their question about the temple. Everything that we have just read is a description of what they would encounter when the temple would be destroyed. And I love this because at at the end, later in chapter 13, in verse 28, he starts talking to them about, you know how to tell the difference in the seasons. Look at verse 29, he says, even so when you see these things, He's referring back to their question about the temple. When you see these things happening, you know that it is near right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass away until these things have happened. All of what we've just read, everything is Jesus talking about the temple. He hasn't even begun talking about the end of time yet. He's only talking about the temple and the temple being destroyed And he's telling them that it's going to happen in their generation. And I think Jesus, he's already given them perspective on where to put their hope. And I I don't think here that Jesus is trying to scare his disciples. Sometimes people will misuse texts like this and they they make it sound like fear mongering, you know, like you better be afraid. This is what's coming. This is what Jesus is going to do. And I don't think that's what's happening here. I don't think Jesus is trying to scare his disciples, but he's trying to prepare his disciples. He wants them to be courageous when the things that he's predicting come to pass. So he's preparing them. He he is like a general preparing his army to go to battle. You think about a general who's preparing his army. He wants them to know what it's going to be like when they set foot on the battlefield. He wants them to know, hey, there's going to be bullets flying by your head. There's going to be landmines going off and jets flying overhead. You must be confident you've trained for this. Don't be afraid. Be confident. I think this is what Jesus is saying to his disciples. He's not trying to scare them. He wants them to be courageous. And so he's trying to prepare them. I mean, think about the guys he's talking to. We know here that he's talking specifically to Peter and Andrew and James and John. These guys are all fishermen. He's like, hey, you guys, you fishermen, you're gonna be handed over, you're gonna be flogged, and you're gonna get to stand before governors and kings. You imagine that if your life is you've just been a fisherman and Jesus is like, hey, you're gonna stand before kings. governors to testify about me. Of course he wants them to be prepared. He wants them to know that it's coming. And in verse 10, we get this battle cry where he's saying, listen, the gospel must be proclaimed to all the nations. He's trying to prepare his disciples for what's to come. And he even tells them, look, don't be afraid. Don't worry. Be on your guard. Be alert, but don't worry because the Holy Spirit is going to be with you. He's going to give you everything that you need to say when you need to say it. It reminds me some of Joshua in the book of Joshua where he says, be strong and courageous, do not be afraid. The Lord is going before you. And so in all these verses that we've read, verses one through 13 and then 28 through 30, it is Jesus giving his disciples that 40 year perspective. Don't put your hope in the temple stones. This is what's going to happen to them. Put your hope in me. And he's giving them preparation so that they don't have to be afraid when these things start to happen, but they can be courageous. Courageous. That is what's happening in this part of Mark chapter 13. Now, in verse 14, it starts to get a little bit weird. And, you know, verses 14 through 27 of Mark chapter 13 are are very confusing. And I just want to be honest with you. Like, I have been confused reading it all week. You know, Mark starts off in verse 14 talking about the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong. And all week I kept reading and I was really hoping to be able to stand up here and give you this amazing understanding of what that means. And Mark even says, he's like, let the reader understand. I was like, Mark, I don't understand, bro. I I don't get it. I don't know what you're trying to communicate. There are so many theories about the abomination that causes desolation. It's clearly a reference to a prophecy in Daniel. But truthfully, there's lots of theories about what Jesus might be talking about. But honestly, I don't know if anyone knows for certain. I just don't know if we know. There's some mystery around that. In these these passages between 14 and 27, Jesus also talks about this idea of distress. Now here is where I think Jesus is zooming out to that eternal perspective, and here's how we know. No longer is he talking about these things that the disciples asked about. Instead, he's going to talk about those days, You'll see language of that day, those days, at that time, that hour. We see it in this section, we see it in verse 17, we see it in verse 19 and 20, uh, 21, 24, and 26. Over and over, Jesus keeps talking about those days, those days. This was a Jewish reference to the end of time. When Hebrew people thought about the day of the Lord, Judgment Day, whatever you wanna call it, they would talk about those days, or they would talk about that day, the day of the Lord. And so Jesus clearly here has gone from talking about the 40-year perspective about the temple to an eternal perspective about those days. And as he describes them, he uses language that's confusing. But one thing's really clear: He talks about how distressing those days are going to be, how hard they're going to be, that is not going to be an easy time. One reason that is confusing is because he uses this language that it's called apocalyptic prophecy apocalyptic language was just a genre of of Jewish prophecy. And so apocalyptic prophecy, just like any other genre, has to be interpreted carefully. We are gonna interpret poetry differently than we would interpret historical writing. Well, apocalyptic writing will often use poetic and even really extreme language to try to describe something that's difficult to understand because it's describing the future that we cannot see yet. So it's difficult to see. And so Jesus uses some language that's a bit confusing But what we know is that it is going to be a hard time, a time of distress. He says, a time of distress that has been unequaled in the history of the world and never be equaled again. But what I want us to focus on is verses 24 through 27. In verse 24, Jesus says this. He says, but in those days following that distress, hear that, in those days following that distress, we'll come back to that. He says, the sun will be darkened the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, there's that phrase again, men will see the son of man coming in clouds with great power and glory and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now, what is Jesus doing here? He's used a lot of very strong language. He's talked about distress He's talked about uh, the stars falling from the sky and all this extreme language. What is he doing? I think he's doing the same thing with all of us that he was doing with the disciples about the temple. Because he's now talking about an eternal perspective. He's talking to all of us just as he was to the disciples. And I think he is not trying to scare us. He's not trying to freak us out. I think he's trying to give us perspective. And I think he's trying to give us preparation just like he was with the disciples. This time I think he does it in a different order. I think he starts with us with the preparation. So verses 14 through 23, describing this time of distress, it is Jesus preparing his people for what is to come. And we need to have a clear picture of what he's talking about here. I think sometimes the way that Some parts of of Christianity have have talked about the end times and the way sometimes that pop culture talks about it. It's almost like we have this image of of God as though he's sitting in heaven like, man, I can't wait till that time when I just wreak havoc on earth. It's gonna be great. That's not what God is doing. And that's not what Jesus is describing. It's not a picture of God excited about unleashing havoc. I think instead it's Jesus looking at us and he's saying, listen, listen to me. This, This planet... This world, under the control of humanity, is on a collision course with disaster and distress. It's coming. The time is coming. As it approaches, there's gonna be extremely difficult times. There's gonna be people who try to deceive you. There's gonna be false prophets and false false Christs who are gonna try to pull you away from me. He says, so be prepared and take courage. I am coming back and I will end the distress. My glory and my power will be greater than any glory and power that the earth has ever seen. This is what Jesus is trying to say to us. He wants us to be prepared. He wants us to understand that when the distress comes, he is also going to come. And you remember I told you in in verse 24, it says the days following that distress. Jesus is not unleashing the havoc and the distress upon the earth. Jesus is going to come after the distress to end the distress. Jesus comes to make all things new, to make all things right. Jesus shows up to end the distress that has been unleashed in this world as the result of mankind being in charge for a while. Jesus does not bring the distress, he ends the distress. I think this is such a beautiful picture of what Jesus is saying. He wants us to be prepared so that we can have courage so that we can be strong, so that we can trust in him and know that when things get scary, he's coming back. He's coming back. So he's preparing us. And once again, he's gonna give us some perspective. You remember with the temple, he said, guys, don't trust in the temple stones. Don't trust in the temple stones of this world. I think here he is saying, look, it's not just the temple that's gonna fade. In verses, in verse 24 to 26, 25, he, he talks about the sun being darkened and, and the moon not giving light and the stars falling. In other words, what he's saying, is saying, look, when the son of man, when Jesus returns in his glory and his power, everything else that has ever had glory or power will pale in comparison. He's saying when Jesus returns, the sun itself, it's not just the accomplishments of mankind that will fail to compare. He says even creation itself and all of its glory and its splendor won't compare with the glory and the power of Jesus. And the message I think is the same to us. He says, who do you hope in? What are you impressed by? Where do you find your hope? Don't put your hope in the temple stones of this world because they will pale in comparison in glory and power when Jesus Christ comes in his glory and his power. There will be no other glory that can compare when the king of glory and the king of power returns at the end. You know, there's many things that we can put our hope in. And I don't know what you put your hope in. I already talked about me driving through Nashville and seeing, you know, there's so many things we can put our hope in. But Jesus says, don't put your hope in the glory of man or in the things that we can accomplish or even in creation itself, but put your hope in the cornerstone, in Jesus Christ. He is the one that is going to come back and make everything right. He is the one that is gonna overthrow the distress and bring peace. So Jesus, preparing us so that we won't be afraid, preparing us so that we can be courageous, and Jesus giving us perspective so that we know where to put our hope and who to put our hope in so that we won't be disappointed. I think this is what Jesus is doing in this text. He is not trying to scare us, but he is trying to make us courageous so that no matter what comes, we will hope in him. Now we kind of have to ask the question, what do we do with this? What do we do with, with, with Mark chapter 13 and with Jesus talking about the end and being courageous? I think there's a couple things and we see this in the last part of the chapter in verses 32 uh, through 37. In verse 32 through 37, we start to see a glimpse of what Jesus wants us to do with this. I don't think, he's gonna start in verse, in verse 32. I think he's gonna start with what we don't do. Listen to Verse 32. He says, no one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. Listen to that again. No one knows about that day. Again, he's talking, this is the eternal perspective, talking about that day, that hour. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. I think we start with this. We don't start with what do we do. We start with, we can know right away what we don't do. We don't need to worry about when this is going to happen. It's not something we need to stress about, wring our hands about, or be distraught about. Jesus tells us here that he himself does not know. And I read that this week, it messed with my mind with what I understand about Jesus. Like, Jesus is equal with God, all authority with God, and yet for some reason he chooses to limit his knowledge of when this will happen. And I think this is really beautiful. I think Jesus is trying to give us courage when we face mystery, when we face the mysteries of the Bible, Because here there is a mystery that Jesus says he himself did not understand. But he says, I know that the Father knows and I will follow the Father and I will trust the Father. And this is what he calls us to do. When when there's mystery, we don't need to wring our hands and try to figure out when the end will come. He says, follow me as I trust the Father. Trust in the Father's goodness. Trust him. Follow me as I follow the Father. And so we start, we say, what do we do? The first thing is what we don't do. We don't need to worry. We don't need to have anxiety about when it's going to happen, but we can trust in the Father and trust that the Father is good because Jesus trusted his Father and Jesus trusted that his Father was good. And then we keep reading in verse 33. This is where Jesus tells us what to do. He gives us kind of our marching orders now that he's given us preparation, now that he's given us perspective. In verse 33, he gives us our marching orders. He says, be on guard be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house, has put his servants in charge, each with his assigned task. And he tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, don't let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. This is Jesus' imperative for what we are to do with what he has told us about eternity and what will happen at the very end. He says, Be on guard, be alert, be watchful, be be waiting, keep alert. Now, if you're like me, this felt frustrating because I kept asking, What do we do with this Jesus? And all I kept hearing was watchfulness, watchfulness, be alert, be on guard, be on watch. And I'm like, I know this can't mean that you want me to just like sit outside and stare at the skies and wait till I see you coming back. Like, that can't be what this means. So what is he saying to us when he's saying, be alert, be on guard, watch? Once again, I think we find a really beautiful answer from an insider who was standing there when Jesus said these things. Remember Peter, he would have heard Jesus saying, when Jesus said, what I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Peter would have heard those words. And again, in the, book, in the book of First Peter, in this letter that Peter writes, I think he's gonna talk about what we do when we start seeing things fall apart around us and we don't know when the end is going to come. Look in chapter four of verse Peter. Chapter four, verse 12. Again, this is a letter that Peter would have written right around the time the temple was about to be destroyed. And Peter writes this in verse 12 of chapter four. He says, dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial that you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. In other words, hey, when when hard things start to come, Jesus already told us that, it's not strange. He's already prepared us, we need to be courageous. He says, instead, rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. He's talking about that same picture, son of man coming in glory. And then look at verse 19. He says, so then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. What does it mean to be watchful? What does it mean to be on guard, to be alert as Jesus's people? Peter says, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Submit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. I think he's really pointing us back to what we even talked about last week. Remember when Jesus was asked what the most important thing was, what did he say? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your mind. Trust in your faithful creator. Submit yourself to your faithful creator. And Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. And Peter says, continue to do good. Continue to press on in doing good. So I think when Jesus, when he says watch, when he says keep watch, it does not mean that we stop doing everything and stare at the skies and wait for Jesus. It means that we continue to press into God our Father. It means that we continue to do good and love our neighbors as ourselves. We just continue to do what Jesus calls us to do. I think it's such a beautiful message for us. This is not a message where so many will take the message of Mark 13 and and turn it into this this message of, hey, you better get your act together because Jesus is coming back and when he does, man, you're in trouble. It's not what Jesus is saying at all. Jesus is saying, look, things are gonna get hard in this world, but I'm coming back. I am the one who has overcome the world. and my glory and my power, you can trust in that. You can have hope in that. And he even says, look, I will gather my people. I will gather the elect, my people, to myself. This is a beautiful picture of encouragement from Jesus. He gives us perspective and he prepares us so that we can be courageous. As we kind of wrap up today and we get ready to go take communion, I, I kept thinking about, Lord, what do we do with this? What do we, what's the handle? How do we bring this to the ground this week? And I think there's really two questions that I want us to ask ourselves as we go to communion. The first one has to do with this perspective. Jesus is saying, look, don't trust in the temple stones of this world. Don't put your hope in the temple stones of this world, but trust in the cornerstone. So as you go to communion, I just ask you, you know, whether you are a, a follower of Jesus, whether you're you know, a curious seeker or if you, you don't believe in Jesus, my question is just this, where do you put your hope? What are you putting your hope in? Because the truth is all of us are going to put our hope in something. There's so many things that we can put our hope in. It may be money, maybe success, Maybe we put our hope in in the economy thriving, you know, so that the value of my house can go up. Like, Maybe we put our hope in capitalism. Maybe we put our hope in in socialism. Maybe we put our hope in science or in fame or in being thought well of by others. But Jesus is asking us, where do you put your hope? And as you go to communion, I, I, I encourage you, like, search your heart. Ask yourself, what are you putting your hope in? Where does your hope lie? And as you take that bread, as you take that juice, and we remember, the Bible tells us that when we take the bread and the juice, that we are proclaiming Jesus until he returns. So today we are proclaiming him. Ask yourself this question, is your hope truly in the cornerstone, the son of man that will come in all power and glory, or is your hope in a temple stone that has a fading power and glory? So the first question, where is your hope? Second question is this, when you think about the end, when you think about Jesus returning, Do you feel scared or do you feel encouraged? Do you feel scared or do you feel encouraged? The message here from Jesus is very clear. He says, look, if you will come to me, come to me. I have all power and all glory. Remember two weeks we talked about his authority. He leverages his authority for your advantage. And when we come to Jesus, there's nothing to be afraid of. In the end, the one who that we trust in, Jesus Christ, all power and glory, will come and make things right again. So as you go to communion, where are you putting your hope? What is your hope in? And two, do you feel scared or encouraged by this? And if you feel scared, if somebody shares you, they feel more scared about the end, just pray with them. If you want prayers uh, during communion, there's gonna be someone at the respond banner over here. If you would like prayers about this or anything else, come talk to us, we'd love to pray with you. I'm gonna pray for us. And we've got communion set up all the way around the room. And I just encourage you to take some time to commune with one another, pray with one another, and just encourage one another this morning. Let's pray.